The Ten Commandments, they are the foundation of Judaism, of Christianity, of morality. Teach these ethical principles, motivate people to obey them, and reward the good obedient children with promises of eternal bliss. But is this popular good guy, bad guy view of religion the truth? Our Bible teacher Dave Woodson continues his discussion of Matthew chapter 5 and answers this question. If the consistent, detailed, legal obedience of the first century Pharisee failed to impress God the Father, how can there be any hope for us? Christianity, Judaism, in fact, probably all foundations of morality are built on the Ten Commandments. I mean, a 20-year-old liberal radical in university uh, might be able to scoff at their relevance for contemporary modern society, and yet uh, by the time you're 35, almost everyone has decided, no, they really are applicable for the way that we live day by day. They're important, the Ten Commandments. And so as life begins to settle down, you know, by 35, you usually have a couple kids, and you're settling down your existence. You settle into a religious gathering of people, a church or a synagogue, if you follow the normal path. And religion begins to filter out and become focused. And it basically becomes this. In the popular mentality, the basic idea of religion is that you must obey the Ten Commandments or something like that. You must take those moral codes and the church and the synagogue is basically given to us to teach us, first of all, what those commandments mean. And then when they've taught us what those commandments mean, they're to help us to be able to be motivated to obey them. And if we will obey them, the basic scenario in popular religious thinking goes like this. Someday when we pass on and we come to those pearly gates, St. Peter will say to us, welcome home if you've done a relatively good job obeying the commandments. And most of us kind of believe that when compared to others, we do a relatively good job obeying the Ten Commandments. After all, you know, we didn't steal most of the time. We didn't um, bear false witness. We didn't lie most of the time. Most of the time we were fairly good truth tellers. We didn't commit adultery most of the time. In fact, many of us never committed adultery physically. And so we look at Peter with great confidence. We look at his eyes and say, Peter, you'll welcome me into my eternal rest because I follow the tenets of popular religion. Now, there's another side of that. If you've blown every one of those commandments, if you've committed adultery and you've stolen and you've murdered and all those kind of things, then I'm sorry, you're going to be excluded. Now, almost everybody understands what I just talked about. We just naturally fall into that pattern. And I felt it was very important for us to ask ourselves whether this popular view of religion, whether this popular view of the Ten Commandments really fits in with what Moses was saying. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, it begins like this. Moses summoned all of Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws that I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at, at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but, with, but it was with us, with all of us who are alive here today. 
The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between you and the Lord to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And he said, and the thunderous voice of God read forth, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love and mercy to thousands, to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day, it is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your manservant nor your maidservant nor your son nor your daughter nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or his land or a manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And thus we have recorded the Ten Commandments. And remember in popular religious thinking, if we obey those commands, we'll be welcomed to the pearly gates. If we disobey those commands, we will never get in to the heavenly court. Now the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to go to Matthew chapter 5 because we have the New Testament, and I think it's very important for us not to make the mistake that a group of religious leaders made in the first century. As we open up to Matthew chapter 5, we have an incredible statement that's made in verse 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 reads like this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let me read that again. It says, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that statement demolishes the popular view of religion that permeates almost all of society. Because as I look at the righteousness of the Pharisees, popular religion is fulfilled in the righteousness of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were a religious group that developed after the exile. And they developed probably in response to the ministry of Ezra, the priest. And Ezra was a mighty leader that came back from the Babylonian exile. And in reading the prophets, 
in studying books like Jeremiah and Hosea, the children of Israel decided that the reason they went into exile is because they disobeyed the Ten Commandments and the other 613 rules and regulations that God had given. And they decided that that would never happen to them again as a nation. And so this group of, of, of pious Israelites got together and they, they wrote down all of those laws, all 613 of them. They began to develop other laws so that they would be able to apply them in changing circumstances and so that they could be absolutely sure that they obeyed all the commandments of God so they would never go into exile again. By the time 400 years of time had rolled by, from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to the coming of Jesus, by the time that time had, had gone by, this group of very rigorous religionists had honed obedience to the commands of God to a fine art. And they had covered every area of society, from what you ate, to what you drank, to what you wore, to what you did on holidays, to what you did on the Sabbath. They have a whole tradition that developed. In fact, today you can read that in the Mishnah. You can go to the library. And I read large portions of it yesterday. And you can read entire sections on on oaths and what it means to swear falsely. You can read entire sections on cleansings and all the rules that you need to do to be, be sure to fulfill the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. If ever there was a group of rigorous religionists, the Pharisees had the bases covered. In fact, if popular religion is true, then the Pharisees will be welcomed by Moses at the pearly gate. And Moses, the one who was the mediator of God to give us the Ten Commandments, if the Pharisees are right, then they will be welcomed with open arms. If I would go to people in the first century and talk to them about who do you think is most certain to get through the pearly gates, who do you think is most certain to be able to enjoy eternal life, they would respond, the popular uh, talk show hosts of the day would say certainly the Pharisees represent that. And then we come back to the words of our Messiah. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And so I say, I say, Jesus. And back at this time when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, I would say, Rabbi, my teacher, what in the world are you talking about? Don't you know that you're speaking about the most conservative, the most popular you're talking about the religious group that goes out among the people and really lives a clean, separated, solid life? And Jesus would say, sit down, my son, because I want to talk to you. In fact, what I'd like to do is let's just take three of the commandments and let me interpret for you, let me communicate to you what the Heavenly Father on Mount Sinai was genuinely saying. You see, the Pharisees took the law to just be written on a tablet of stone. They viewed it just as an external standard. But I want to talk to you about why my heavenly daddy and why your God, who alone should be worshipped, why he revealed these moral standards. And he begins not in the first part of the law, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, but he begins with the part of the law that deals with you and me with the way that we relate together. 
And so what he does is he begins with a simple command which says, thou shalt not murder. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, and back at Mount Sinai this was said. It was also said down through the traditions of Judaism. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So far, so good. There's the religious teaching. You have heard it said, what I just read a few minutes ago, thou shalt not murder. And if you murder, then expect to face the judgment of the courthouse. Expect to stand before a jury of your peers. Expect to be condemned as guilty. And under Old Testament law, going way back to Genesis chapter 9, he who sheds another person's blood violently, murderously, deserves to have their blood shed. So, so far, so good. And most of us have not been in Huntsville. We haven't been in other state penitentiaries. Almost everybody can say, I'm safe. Boy, when it comes to thou shalt not commit murder, I've got that one covered. And that's when Jesus said, son, daughter, that's where you're missing the thrust. And he goes on and says some of the incredible things in the next verse. Look at the way the Messiah God's mediator to us. Look at the way he interprets this command. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. How many of you have never been angry with someone in your family? How many of you have never been angry with your mom and dad? How many of you have never been angry with somebody at school? You see? See, we all say, that's right. Thou shalt not murder, that deserves judgment. But when Jesus says, thou shalt not be angry, and that's worthy of judgment, that should be condemned, boy, then we say, wait a minute. You know, that's getting inside of me. And then Jesus develops a little bit further. Look what he goes on and says here. He says, but I tell you, that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, or you fool, or you stupid idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says imbecile, and even stronger, it says you will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, though, I say, Jesus, what's happening in my life? You know, the command, thou shalt not murder, you mean to tell me that that command, thou shalt not murder, means that when this force arises within myself and I'm upset and I'm angry and it makes me yell at somebody in the playground, you stupid idiot, I could kill you! Or when a husband, his wife, you know, just did something you know, maybe she bounced about eight checks in a row and he says, oh, honey, how could you do such a stupid thing? How could you be such an imbecile? Jesus says, that is worthy of the fires of hell. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because where does anger come from? You see, what Jesus does is he, he, he moves from the external code and he penetrates deep into our souls. See, what causes a person to land up in the penitentiary? Because angry, anger was welling up in their heart. It begins many times with a father and mother 
who the, from the time that a little baby was real small said, you imbecile, you stupid idiot, you jerk. And almost every guy that I've talked to going in on prison crusades that's been on death row, that's been a murderer, almost every one of them will give you a history where there was no daddy in the home that loved them and cared for them. Instead, there was anger and there was condemning and there was calling him a fool, calling him stupid or her stupid from the time they were small. And Jesus said that that becomes the breeding ground. It's that, that angry spirit. Now, Jesus is not talking about going through life totally placid. In fact, the book of Ephesians says, if you're angry, don't sin. The emotive response of anger to a bad thing, to a bad situation, is not evil in itself. Prolonged anger, even when the anger was initially a righteous thing and a good thing, prolonged anger becomes sinful because it starts to slip into, I'm going to make you pay. And I want every one of us to recognize and to think hard. What's my heart like inside? Am I angry today? Am I angry in my soul? You see, there's the old saying goes that when you shake, when you shake a, a coffee pot, it spills out what's inside. When you get shaken, what do you spill out? And that'll reveal what's inside. And Jesus is saying that that anger that's inside of my heart at times, that anger that can cause me to lash out at Mary or can cause me to lash out at my kids and call one of my kids a name that says you're stupid and you're dumb. Jesus is saying, Dave, that violence inside of you, that verbal violence, is the root of physical violence. And it means that you're one. You are part and parcel with the criminal who's committed murder. So I say, well, what do you want me to do about it? Jesus goes on and says, this is how I'd like you to solve it. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. You know, a lot of church services would suddenly be lacking in, in attendance because just like that, half the audience could be gone. You see, what Jesus is saying is that before we come to worship him, before we come to adore him, or come let us adore him, Jesus says you need to think hard in your heart. Are you one? Are you at peace with the different people in your life? You see, if you're sitting here, then you're angry. And there's someone that, that you have hurt, that you've spilled the acid of, of anger and bad names. And we can sit here piously, but, you know, and being here over so many years, I know that you, at times, cuss like crazy in your house, some of you. And all of a sudden, you hardly even know where it comes from, but it just spills all over your family. And you use all kinds of words, and you can come on Sunday morning and be real pious, and you can be real religious, and everybody thinks that you're just a super believer. Jesus says, if you've poured the acid of anger all over your family, then don't worship until you go to your family and look at your wife, look at your son and daughter, or look at your husband, look at your kids, and say, I want you to forgive me. 
What I did was worthy of the pit of hell. It comes from deep inside and it's an evil thing. And I want you to forgive me because it was wrong. You see, you can't just piously do that just in your own heart. The reality of human relationships is that in our society, people will go through weeks and months and years of being angry with people. And it's right here within a body of believers. And the Messiah, Jesus, just cut through all that religious surface thing. It says, if you're angry, then don't bring a gift to the altar. See, don't put more money in the offering plate to try to cover your guilt. Don't try to get, don't teach more Sunday school classes trying to cover your guilt. Don't try to just bury yourself in church activity to cover your guilt. Jesus goes right to the truth and the honesty of the matter and says, you have got to do eyeball-to-eyeball business with those that you're angry with. So just leave your gift at the altar and do it and go and get it right. Go and talk to that person. Go and produce, and, and you do your part to bring about restoration. He goes on and says this about just living out there in society. He says that settle matters quickly with your adversary. In verse 25, this has to do with business matters that might come up as we're interacting within our society and there might be a court case that develops. It says settle matters quickly with your adversary is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What it's saying here is be very careful about living your life saying, boy, I'm going to get this fair. I'm going to get this right. He's saying if you're in a court case and he's saying there's any possibility that you've been wrong, he says, get it right with your brother. Proverbs says this as, as well. If, if you've made a rash vow, if you've made a mistake, then do everything you can to get out of it. What do we do in our society? We says, I'm going to beat this. I'm going to get a good lawyer. I'm going to get just a, a real cunning, sharp person that's going to deal with it. Boy, I'm going to go for the jugular. We're going to get in that courtroom, and boy, we're going to get it. We're going to win. Jesus says that's wrong. Jesus says that we as the people of God should be those that want to settle matters. And boy, that, that, that flame of broken relationships can just become a kindling fire that becomes a forest fire in our lives where a, even a legitimate court case becomes illegitimate. Now, I'm not saying that a believer never needs and an unbelieving society never needs to go to court. I'm not saying that. What Jesus is saying, though, is beware that attitude in your soul, that pride that wells up within you that says, I'm going to beat this. Jesus says we need to learn to settle matters quickly. It breaks my heart when believers end up going to secular courts. I believe the New Testament teaches that believers in conflicts together with other believers should never be in a secular court. If believers in conflict with another believer are in secular court, Jesus says it would be better to get totally ruined in your life, totally bankrupted, than to destroy the testimony of God within a society by being at total odds with a brother or sister. Now, that can get very difficult. How do you know whether a person really is a believer? But we need to learn to use the gathering together of God's people for making judgments among us and not let things flame 
to the point that we have to go to secular court to decide the issue. And Jesus says that, that, that the, the fuel that's underneath this tremendous passion to get even is our anger. And he's saying that our anger is worthy of hell. And so when Jesus looks at us and says, Thou shalt not murder. And the Pharisee piously says, Well, I've never done that. But Jesus the Messiah says, Wait a minute. If you've done it inside, if you've had that kind of spirit inside, then that's why there's a hell. Because only hell can contain the violence and the evil that that kind of internal malignancy generates among a people. He says, if you're angry, don't sin. Deal with it quickly. Go to your brother, go to the person that you're estranged from, and get it right quickly. And then, after that horizontal relationship is made right, then the vertical relationship will be made right. He moves to another one in Matthew chapter 5. He takes another command to illustrate this idea of the internality of the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, it says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. And again, those that were listening, especially the self-righteous religionists in the group, would say, Now, wait a minute, I'm clear there. I've never been in bed with someone that I should not be in bed with sexually. I've never committed that act. And so I'm safe. And so like with the religious people that brought the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, and they said, man, we caught this woman right in the very act. The law says we should stone her. And all those that are holding the stone say, we don't deserve, you know, we, do, we have every right to stone this woman. She's guilty. We caught her in the physical act. And so we're clear on that one. Now what does Jesus mean? What did God the Father mean when he said, thou shalt not commit adultery. What almost all of us do is we externalize it. And religionists can be experts at externalizing it. In fact, in the, in the, in the Church of England, they've gone through a whole code of, of, in the clergy about what it really means to commit adultery. And if there's not certain actions in the act, then it's not adultery. What did Jesus say about that detailing and making sure that certain physical acts aren't done. Everything else can be done, but not this act. What did Jesus say about that, that externalizing of the law? Jesus says this. He says, if you look upon a woman, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus didn't say this. If you're going through life and just suddenly you're at uh, a big mall and you're a guy and a beautiful girl walks by and automatically that thought comes into your mind, Jesus is saying, well, you've already committed adultery. That's not what Jesus is saying. That'll be the battle of a lifetime for most of you men. In our society, it's rapidly becoming a battle for the women as well. As our society more and more over this command, this is the command in our society that's taken very lightly. Now, the book of James tells us that lust in itself is not sin. The desire that suddenly pops into your mind, a demonic spirit can bring that thought into your mind, and it can be extraneous to yourself. Your old fleshly nature can bring that thought into your mind. That battle, when those thoughts come into your mind, are not sin in itself. James said it's when lust hath conceived 
that it brings forth sin. You see, what it means is that when that thought is united with the thought pattern of your will that says, I would if I could, and it becomes intense desire, then he's saying, you've committed adultery. What Jesus is saying is that adultery is not just an external act, it is an internal act, just like murder. He's saying that just like murder begins with a hostile anger inside of us, that adultery begins with internal lustful desires. When you guys go to a mall and you go mauling, and the basic idea in the mall is to look at all the beautiful chicks and to make judgments about their physical appearances, you need to ask yourself, what's happening inside of me? And if you're going through saying, I would if I could, and all the terminology that's used in our culture, I want to make a score. That person's an easy one. All that terminology, Jesus is saying, that whole internal thought world is adulterous, is immoral. You say, well, Dave, I'm not married. How could I commit adultery? Because if you're not married, then the, the people that you're lusting after, many of them are, and then some of those that are not, one day will be. The whole idea is that they don't belong to you. Sexual desires towards those that you do not belong to, that become conceived, lustful desires, I would if I could, are sinful. And Jesus is saying that's wrong. Our society says, no, it's just normal. That's just the way people are. In fact, we've become like the frog that's been slowly boiled in the hot water over this one. Because adultery hardly moves us at all. Believe, even, even among God's family, believers can, you know, can be a little bit immoral, and families can creak and crack and break, and partners can be swapped, and it's no big deal. Jesus says, yes, it is. In fact, it's incredible what Jesus said needs to be done about the sin of adultery. It says that if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It says if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If you guys in the audience have trouble, if I have trouble looking at a woman that doesn't belong to me, and when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. In other words, if, if in my thought life, my eyes are constantly causing me to commit the sexual act in my mind, then Jesus says, Dave, take a knife and cut out your right eye and throw it out. Now that's gruesome. That's gruesome. Why did Jesus say that? The next thing he says this. He says, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He says, Dave, if you're right-handed, he says to the audience, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, this is one segment of Jesus' teaching that's often misconstrued. Because, in fact, one of the churchmen named Origen thought literally, Jesus said, if you've got a part of your body that offends you, cut it off. Because it would be better to be able to go into heaven with that part of your body missing than to suffer in hell forever and ever. So he did. He, he castrated himself. Origen one of the greatest Bible scholars of the third century. Now, is that what Jesus is saying? You see, the tragedy is, is if you think of what he said, you can cut out your right eye, you still got your what? 
Your left eye. Can you lust with your left eye? You bet. You can cut off your right hand. In fact, you can go ahead and cut off your right arm, your left arm, your right leg and your left leg, and you still got your head in your trunk, and guess what? You can still commit adultery in your heart just fine. Nobody will be too desirous of you. You know, kind of a bloody stump is kind of rough to deal with, but... See, this is called hyperbole. Great teachers all use it because it drives home a point. It's a very powerful way to communicate. What Jesus is saying is he wants you to feel the pain. He wants you to get burdened about the fact that committing adultery in your heart, committing immorality in your heart is worthy. It's so bad that an amputation would be a light thing to try to protect yourself from it. And what he's really saying is this. We need to take radical action to deal with the problem of internal adultery. What we do in our own society is we feed it. We go to one show after another where immorality is treated lightly. We read one novel after another where immorality is treated lightly. Now, just because a movie or just because a book has immorality in it doesn't mean that it's motivating you to do that. It's the way that the writer writes about it. The Bible has the story of David and Bathsheba. But the story doesn't go like this. Beautiful king sees beautiful woman bathing naked, goes to bed with her, and then when her husband comes back from war, David and Uriah get together and say, boy, this is great. You've got a great wife, and boy, it was great to be able to have some time with her. And isn't it great that we live in a let-live and free society where we can all live happily ever after? You can have your wife back now. And we all go on living. Kind of like a modern movie, you know, if you're good-looking and you're prosperous and you're one of the real professionals, you know, you can just go to bed with different people that you want to go to bed with. That's sinful. The Bible tells the truth. When David committed adultery, her husband lost her life because of it. The baby that was generated lost his life because of it. The whole history of Israel began to take a downturn because all of these lines of relationships are all connected. And Jesus says, I want you to feel the pain of adultery. On Christmas morning, the best gift that, I've ever, that I ever received was a letter from Jonathan. And just one line from his letter, one line said, Dad, I just want to thank you for being my dad. And few sons can, be, can say that their dad has taught them to be worldly wise but innocent and have not made the mistake that so many people make. And the tears started rolling down my cheeks. Because when I was right here, sitting on this side of the church, when I was their age, I had to make decisions. And a society was beckoning me. And there was the cheerleaders. And then you go to college, and there's the intellectuals. And you can go down to Alfred University, and there's a whole campus filled with available women. We used to go up to Montreal in the summertime, and you could go up to Montreal and with the French Canadians. And morality was not the in thing in Montreal in the park. And I had to make choices all the way through, even at seminary. You know, among all these supposedly religious guys, you have to make choices. 
You know, I am so glad my oldest son can write me a note. Dad, thanks for the choices that you made. And that's my challenge to you. It's worth it. It's just not worth it to make the wrong choices and to move away from faithfulness. It's not worth it to say, well, everyone's doing it. It's the end thing. The hormones are surging through my body. I just, I know that, that it's wrong, but it's better to make those hard choices. I really want to encourage some of you right in the audience have made the right choices. Some of our kids down through the years have made right choices, and I want to encourage you in that. You took very seriously the Lord's words, thou shalt not commit internal immorality. I want to encourage you in that. Because Jesus says that that is a good thing to make those hard choices to take radical surgery against immorality. But you know, as I think about these things, we can easily talk about not committing external adultery. But when we all face the truth, what about internal adultery? It levels us all. And that brings us to the crux of what Jesus is getting at. The very next verses, he talks about divorce, a very strong scourge in our society. He says, you have heard it said it's all right to get a divorce. Look at Deuteronomy 24. Jesus says, no, if you get a divorce for any cause except for immorality, then you committed adultery. In the next section, he, say, he talks about taking false oaths. He said, you've heard it said, if you, you know, if you don't swear by the temple or if you swear by the gold of the temple, that it's okay. Then you don't have to keep that promise. And there, there was a whole rigorous thing in Judaism where you went right down through. They had a whole code. If you swore by this, it was binding. If you swore by this, it wasn't. And so in their business and everything they did, you had to be sure that you listened real carefully. Kind of like in our society, when you have to get everything on written and in a code, you have to be sure to get it all down, or otherwise a person won't keep their word. And Jesus is saying all of those externalizing of God's law. Because what it meant, the reason God said, thou shalt not use my name falsely, the reason it says, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not lie like that, is because in order to be close to one another, we need to tell the truth. In order to live together as males and females, a woman needs to be able to feel safe, that she can know that when she's with brothers, that she'll be safe. When she's with her husband, the one person God gives for her, then sex can be enjoyed, but outside the boundaries of that protection, she's safe. It's a horrible thing. The, Lord, the heart of God breaks when a woman has to be afraid because the wolves are on the prowl. That's why God gave the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's a horrible thing to go, just even going shopping, and be afraid when you walk to your car, that's the, your car that somebody might jump on you and even take your life. Murder's a horrible thing. The law of God was given to us because it's the expression of God's kindness and goodness. He wants you to be able to walk through life safely, physically, sexually, relationship-wise. So he gives a command, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not take false oaths. But you know, as I look at those commands and I look at the way Jesus has internalized them, and I have to say, well, I, when I come to Peter at the pearly gates, 
If Peter says to me, well, Dave, I'm not going to be able to let you in because you did commit internal adultery. You might not have done it physically, and your son might have been able to say in December 1992 that he's he's really thankful that his dad was committed to one woman. But what about what went on in your thought? You really want me to put a video before God the Father in heaven of your thought life for 43 years? And David, what about your anger? What about that hatred that can just well up inside of you or that jealousy that just makes you internally, you don't cuss on the outside or you don't say those words loudly because you are a minister. What about all those internal things that welled up inside of you? What about that? What about truth-telling? What about when you really didn't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And I'm going to have to put my head down because I didn't really apply the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. And that's when the blessed good news breaks forth because Jesus, and this really won't happen, but we can picture it happening because Jesus will just welcome us home. But Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, this one is mine. Peter says, what do you mean this one's mine? This one belongs to me. You see, this one came to the place in their life where they realized that I was the only one that fulfilled the Ten Commandments. I was the only ultimate religionist. In fact, David, when he was just a little boy, said, Jesus, thank you so much for taking the penalty for my sin. Thank you for rising again. I want you to infuse me with your life. And I did. And Jesus will say that I came to live inside of David and make him a new creation. And it's all a gift. It's all of mercy. And that new life of Jesus living within really did slowly but surely change him.